If you go ahead and turn back in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 13. And while you're turning there, since this is the first time in 11 weeks that we've been studying in the book of 1 Corinthians, let me remind you of where we've been and point out as we go through this a little bit here uh, of a trend that we have seen in the first nine chapters of this letter a thread that runs through all of this book. In chapters 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4, Paul rebukes some of the church for getting into arguments and quarreling about who their favorite preacher and teacher was, ranking their spiritual superiority by which speaker they liked the most, whom they'd chosen to follow, uh, forgetting that all of those teachers had given them the same message, which was the wisdom of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So instead of glorifying uh, people, instead of glorying in people, or in himself even, Paul, the Apostle Paul, instead called himself a servant and a steward, serving God by carefully and accurately conveying the message that God had instructed him in. In chapter 5, Paul rebuked the church for failing to remove a man who was actively and without repentance living in sin. And the unwillingness of the church to stick their neck out, to risk themselves, and to deal with the truth for the good, for the sake of that man who claimed to be a follower of Christ, and for the sake of the church, for the honor of God, Paul called this arrogance. In chapter 6, some of the church were rebuked for taking each other to court in the secular courts, and Paul said, as if the secular courts could make better decisions than believers. Uh, they would have rather, these, these uh, Christians at Corinth, they would have rather gotten what they thought they deserved from a Christian brother or sister than to keep a good testimony for Christ and for the church in the community. They wanted to get theirs. In the second half of chapter 6, some of the church were rebuked for taking the position that they could use their bodies to do sinful things without causing a problem. Using their freedom in Christ to them, meant getting to do sinful, selfish things. Instead of freedom in Christ, meaning being able to live for Christ with their whole heart. In chapter 7, Paul answers questions on sex and marriage. Uh, What should we, what shouldn't we do? Paul responds to their questions and then teaches them uh, what to do in order to, as he says in verse 35, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. In chapter 8, the church wants to know who's right and who's wrong about what kinds of meat they're allowed to eat. Some of them are puffed up, Paul says, proud of their superior knowledge and intellect, uh, supposed spiritual maturity uh, that allows them, they think, to eat this meat offered to idols, even if it offends or pricks the conscience of their brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you see the thread? Do you see what is consistently happening here? Uh, The Corinthian believers are super eager to know what they can have, what they can do, what they can get away with, how far they can go. If their argument is right, Kind of a me, me, me. Self, self, self. 
And Paul is saying back to them in each instance, Christ, Christ, Christ. Chapters 9 and 10 serve as a kind of summary response to all that has been discussed so far in the book. And the supplied title, the title for chapter 9 in my Bible is this, Paul surrenders his rights. The Corinthians wanted to know what all their rights were. Paul surrenders his rights. Instead of getting mine, give. Instead of pointing possessions and pleasures and securing comfort for myself, point people to Jesus. Instead of using my freedom to boost myself, to satisfy my selfish cravings, to stroke my sinful ego, use your freedom to empty yourself like Christ did. That by any means, whatever sacrifice I have to make, that some would be saved. And then, in what might seem like a counterproductive move, at the end of chapter 9, Paul holds out the potential for a prize. Here's a prize that you could have that they should run to win. Go ahead and look up at uh, chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. It says this, Do you not know that in a race... All the runners run, but only one receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Remember, run to win. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, not indulgence, but sacrifice. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we, an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly following whims and fancies. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And we might ask, now why would Paul dangle a carrot out there like that after seeing how greedy, how self-centered the people of this church were seeming to be, how they were acting? What kind of prize was he talking about? And to answer that question, let's look at some other running, racing analogies in Scripture. How about Philippians 3, 13 and 14? Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, and what lied behind in that passage was all of the praise and the fame and the power given by man, even given by religiosity that Paul had uh, gathered together for himself. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What was the prize? You might say, where was the prize? Or even better yet, who is the prize? We say, yeah, it's Jesus himself and being with him. How about Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. That word's going to come back up later in 1 Corinthians 10. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. There's a ton of grace in that right there. Our founder, the founder of our faith, the perfecter of our faith. 
who for the joy that was set before him, meaning there is joy set before us in Christ, he endured the cross, he despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What is waiting for us at the finish line? What is the motivation that truly pushes us on? It's Jesus himself. There is no greater joy. There is no greater joy to be had than to be in fellowship, in relationship, to be able to serve, and to be with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You might remember a couple weeks ago in our message from Psalm 135, we were reminded that our interest and our desire for pleasure in and of itself is not an evil thing. A desire for pleasure is not an evil thing. God gave us desire for pleasure. What's broken is our tastes. Our taste buds, if you will, for pleasure are all messed up. You might say it like this. God offers us the finest steak, and we prefer instead that nasty Reheated for too long in the microwave, just picked up out of the mud, White Castle cheeseburger. And some of you might say, I like White Castle. I'm sorry. We say this though, and I'm joking with you, but not, not on this point. We like to sin. It's not good for us. So we could say this. We could say this about what we have seen so far in the book of First Corinthians. Everyone is looking out for number one. And I know when we usually say that, we always mean that means the person's looking for themselves, right? But let's think about it a little bit differently. We could say this, Paul and the people of the church were all looking out for number one. The difference being, who is number one in your heart? And the way that you honestly answer that question, we all know the Sunday school answer, the way we honestly answer that question will be what gives you or what robs you of true joy. Steak or White Castle. The way you honestly answer that question may be an indicator of whether you are truly converted. Take heed. And the way you answer that question will drastically change the way you understand what the Bible's even saying. Who is number one in my heart will change the way I read and understand the Bible. Case in point. I want to ask you to consider this statement. True or false, okay? True or false. God will never give you more than you can handle. God will never give you more than you can handle. True or false? Well, now maybe we've seen that statement on a Facebook or an Instagram post with a cool sunset picture with a model behind a text or something like that, wearing a beach hat. This statement is taken from the passage, this passage, 1 Corinthians 10, and specifically verse 13, even though this verse really doesn't say that. And to be fair, we need to ask some questions. Like, more what? God will never give you more what? Trouble? Hardship? And what does handle mean? Does handle mean endurance? Or does handle mean to make it stop and just go away? Uh, unfortunately, often people think this idea of God not giving us more than we can handle means 
God is not going to let anything bad happen to me that is more than I feel like I can deal with right now. And perhaps, thinking this way, and and, let's not point our finger at others because that can be my heart real fast. I think that could be true for all of us. Perhaps not remembering that the man God used to write this verse, the Apostle Paul, was imprisoned, stoned, nearly blinded, dragged through cities, mocked, shipwrecked, and eventually had his head chopped off for his faith. I might call that more than I could handle. And what's worse? If this is my theology, if this is your theology, if this is the way you are reading the Bible, what will your attitude be toward God when something bad happens? When your loved one dies, when you get a bad grade on your exam, when, I don't know, there's a pandemic, when there's a riot in your city, or maybe even a flood that destroys everything you own. What do I think about God when all of a sudden I'm given something that I decide I cannot handle that? I cannot handle this. Do we see God as faithful then? Do we still see him as holy Do we still see him as righteous? Do we see him as loving? And who ends up being the judge then? When we prosecute God and find him guilty in order to justify our anger uh, against him, what does that make us? Does that make sense? Church, truth matters. Accuracy in interpreting the scriptures It matters. Good theology matters. Sound doctrine matters. Maybe in the past we've heard somebody say, I don't don't need all that theology, all that doctrine stuff. Just give me Jesus. Okay, Jesus is, who is he? Okay, he's he's God. He's fully God. He's fully, uh uh-oh. We're into theology already, aren't we? It matters. And I hope what we see in this passage today is that man hasn't changed much. We might have a high view of ourselves compared to people in the past, but man hasn't changed much. Not only from the first century in Corinth to the 21st century in Mount Pleasant, but even as this passage will show, all the way back to 18th century BC and beyond, nearly 40 centuries. Verse 12 in our passage today. Let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall. Pride comes before a fall. So this this passage today is a stark warning. It's a warning. And also, because God is also gracious and kind to us, this passage also gives us the way of escape. It gives us our target for hope our prize. So let's look together in this passage, starting in verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And the first word is for, so we need to know what the 
The four is therefore, okay? Might say it this way. Since you should be running this race to win, I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, brothers, that our fathers, our fathers meaning Paul being a Jew, speaking of the Jewish people, our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The cloud, the cloud Paul's referring to here is the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, where God would go before the nation of Israel in the wilderness when they were, after they were, um, saved out of Israel and headed towards the promised land. The sea is, of course, the Red Sea, where God parted the waters. The whole nation passed through on dry land to escape, uh, the pursuing Egyptians. And the idea of baptism here, it's used as a, as a kind of metaphor. Remember, baptism means to immerse or to plunge. And the ordinance itself for us today identifies us with Christ. For Christians today, the way God has instructed us to communicate our conversion to others is through baptism. It's how we initially identify ourselves with God in Christ to one another. So here's the metaphor. In the same way that we, Christians, are baptized in the water to show that we are God's people, these Jews remained under the cloud, and they passed through that Red Sea together, all of them together with Moses as their leader, and by all of this, they were identified as God's people. So, all were able to be blessed by the protection and leading of the Lord, by the cloud, All were saved from Egypt. All of them walked together with the nation through the Red Sea and then toward the promised land. All. Verse 3. And all ate the same spiritual food. In this context, spiritual just means the source of the food. Not necessarily that the food was spiritually nourishing in and of itself. He's referring here to the manna. Everyone in Israel ate the manna every day, all of them. And all drank the same spiritual drink. Think the water from the rock, when Moses struck the rock. It says, for they drank from the spiritual rock. Notice that's a capital R now. From the spiritual rock that followed them. And the rock was Christ. This is interesting. There was a rabbinical tradition. Jewish rabbis taught that the rock that Moses struck to give the nation water actually followed Israel around in the wilderness just like the cloud, just like the pillar of fire. Everywhere they went, the rock moved along with them and kept giving them water. So you just have like a visual picture in your head of the cloud moving and the people are walking, all of a sudden this rock moving around behind them across the sand or whatever it might have been. I don't think Paul's affirming that here. Okay, we should read this more as there was a rock. Paul's saying there was a rock that followed Israel and cared for them and blessed them. That rock, though, was the Messiah. It was the Son of God, pre-incarnate, the giver of living water, the bread of life. Remember in John 6, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the next day, in order to prove to the crowd that he really was the Messiah, they asked him, 
to prove he was who he said he was, give us bread to eat. Like Moses gave Israel bread in the wilderness. And Jesus said, Moses didn't give you that bread. And later he said, I am the bread of life. So, all national, ethnic Israel was seen, they were identified as Israel. They all received these blessings that came with being God's chosen people. But, we learn in Romans 9, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. So verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown. That word means struck down, laid low. It can mean spread around. So think, that whole generation dies in the wilderness, right? Between Egypt and the promised land, every one of them but Caleb and Joshua dies. Overthrown, strewn about the wilderness between Egypt and the promised land. But why? Or by by what were they overthrown? By who? And the answer to that is God. It was an act of judgment against them. Verse 6, now these things took place as examples. The word there is type. The word we get type from, like a type of Christ. This was a type for us that we might not desire evil as they did. And now, in verses 7 through 10, Paul lists four different examples, these types of people in the nation of Israel taking for granted the blessings of God given to God's people and with that blessing bestowed, desired evil and were therefore overthrown in judgment. So verse 7 is the first one, idolatry. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Uh, This is from Exodus 32, the account of the golden calf. Remember, the people were unhappy with the way God was doing things. God was keeping Moses way too long, and evidently they had things to do. So they modified their religion. They fashioned a calf that was similar to the one of the Egyptian gods. But they still called it the name of the Lord, like Jehovah, Yahweh. And they still offered the same sacrifices to it that they were supposed to offer to the Lord. And then after they made up this new version of the religion of the true faith that God had given them, which is now a false religion, after they were done with that, they followed it all up with a gluttonous feast, drunkenness, and play, which is used here as a euphemism for sexual immorality, sexual relations. So now we know what those things were that they wanted to do that they couldn't wait around for. We know this, idolatry takes many forms. Idolatry takes many forms, but at the root of it all is a desire for some sort of personal gain. And if we make idols, if we make false gods to give us what we want, if we value things over God because we think they're going to give us what we want, then what we're ultimately doing goes all the way back to the fall. I will be like the Most High God. But there is only one God. And he alone is worthy of our worship. Do not be idolaters. Verse 8, number 2. 
is the specific act of sexual immorality. We must not indulge in sexual immorality, as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. This is from Numbers 25. Now, right after Balak had failed to get Balaam to curse Israel because of the all-powerful, immutable God having determined to bless them, the people of Israel started hanging out with the nearby Moabites. And they started then to worship their false gods. So think about the contrast. Remember Balaam's donkey even. Angels there ready to take care of uh, Balaam. The donkey keeps stopping. All of that stuff. Balaam is unable to curse Israel because God won't allow him to even speak curse against Israel. And then they go and find the Moabites. And they worship their false gods. Including the worship including the act of sexual immorality. This is what they did. After all that God had done, it says Israel yoked himself, yoked himself to the name of the God Baal of Peor. That was their false god. Israel exercised their freedom from slavery by making themselves slaves to a fake god so that they could commit immorality with a new batch of people they just met. might remind you of 1 Corinthians 6. It says there, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Do not commit sexual immorality. Verse 9, number 3, We must not put Christ to the test. Meaning, in this context, evaluating God... And finding fault in him. Trying him in the court of our own hearts, in our own minds, and finding him guilty. He says this, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents. Some interesting accounts in the Old Testament. Numbers 21. The people of Israel became impatient again, and they complained again. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? They're saying our old life was better. Do you think unhappy Christians ever say things like that? They said this, for there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. They're talking of the manna. And God wasn't too thrilled with that question or those statements. More so the fact that they had found him guilty. They had accused him of wrongdoing. They had judged God an evil doer. And in this passage, God even used the judgment by his grace to point people to their ultimate hope. When the people were bitten by these snakes, this is the account where God had Moses make that bronze serpent and put it up on a pole. And if the people who had been bitten would simply look to that risen bronze serpent in faith, they would be healed. Look and live. Remember the old gospel song, look to Jesus now and live. Number four, grumbling. Nor grumble or complain. As some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Some good word play there. Numbers 16 is where this is. This is where Korah had just led a rebellion against the leadership of Moses. 
And God judged Korah and those that followed him. But then the next day, the people complained against Moses and Aaron. They didn't like how that went down. They complained against Moses and Aaron, and and they told them this, You have killed the people of the Lord. Inaccurate. Their grumbling wasn't even factual. Uh, Furthermore, once God sent uh, what Paul is calling the destroyer, it was actually Moses and Aaron's intervention that prevented all the people from dying. The destroyer here, this name, it refers to the angel mentioned in passages like 2 Samuel 24, 2 Chronicles 32, Psalm 78, and the one we might remember the most, Exodus 12, where it says, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Not grumbling. Verse 11, these things happened to them as an example, a type. But they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. It's like Paul saying this, the times may have changed. The times may have changed. God is unchangeable. So be instructed, church. Be warned. There isn't another age to come before Christ returns. Judgment is coming. And God rewards righteousness. And sin is punished. Verse 12. Therefore, and this is our warning, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Take heed comes from the word that means Look, see, so keep your eyes open, stay on the alert, pay attention, watch out. So we have to ask ourselves these questions, these four questions. Church, is there idolatry among us? Are there any here who have put other things, other people, possessions, properties, Ultimately themselves above God? Is there idolatry among us? Is there immorality among us? Are we treating these bodies that God has given us, that God has purchased, like they belong to us? Are we treating the bodies of others as though those bodies belong to us? Are any of us participating in the buying and selling of sexual sin through the billion dollar industry called pornography? And as Jesus has cautioned us, are we lusting after people in our hearts? Church, do we judge God? Have any of us decided that since God didn't give us the life of ease, comfort, uh, selfish pleasure, or whatever else it is we think he owes us, that he's failed, and that we now have a right to be angry? to reject his lordship, to reject his sovereignty over our lives? Do we judge? Church, are there any among us who are grumbling about what God is doing? With opportunities all around us, perhaps more than ever before, to declare his praise and to preach the gospel, are we too busy complaining 
and bickering. And did we ever think that our whining and crying might be a stench to anyone who would need to hear about the Savior? And this is where I need to attempt to reach the reached. To reach the reached by God's abundant grace. This verse says, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Is it possible to think you are standing, to think you are standing, when in reality you're not? Well, let's see what Jesus says. Matthew seven twenty one and 22. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I can't help but think if Paul just acknowledged that not all of the nation of Israel were truly the children of God. That God didn't intend for us to take into consideration that there are those who have been identified with the church. There are those who have been identified with the church who aren't truly converted, who aren't born again. Listen, no one is going to heaven because they're Jewish. No one is going to heaven because they're an American living the American dream. No one is going to heaven because their mom and dad took them to the Baptist church every Sunday without fail their whole life and they're still going there today. No one is going to heaven because they rose to the level of a Pharisee or the chief priest. And no one is going to heaven because a local church called them to be their pastor or their deacon or any other ministry we might serve in. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that we could never live, and as our spotless sacrifice, suffered the wrath that we deserve on the cross. Our sin was placed on him, and once and for all judged And then his righteousness put to our account. And just like those snake-bitten Jewish people in the desert, there is a poison in us and it is sin. And we must look in faith to the one who was lifted up. Look! And then receive God's salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Look and live. So we want to look at the meaning of verse 12 and apply it two ways. If you think you're a Christian, but in your heart there is an abundance of idolatry, immorality, judgment, and complaining, may God open your blind eyes even today so that you can finally and truly stand on the promises of God through Jesus Christ. And Christians, brothers and sisters, how many of us here could say, I have no idolatry. I don't have any immorality in my heart. There's no judgment here. I don't complain. 
Probably none of us, I would imagine. It's hard to run a race, let alone win the race, when you keep falling. So let's work together as a team. That's what God has called us to do as a community of believers. Let's work together to watch out for these obstacles, to watch out for these sins that cling so closely and be encouraged by this truth of verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Notice this is past tense. There are temptations that have overtaken us, amen? But no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Has overtaken you means to seize, to grab. There is no temptation that you have ever fallen to, that you ever gave in to and sinned in the midst of, that other people haven't overcome. That might be hard to hear, but that's what that means. We might to say, we might say, I couldn't say no. The temptation was too powerful. No one could have said no. And the answer is, yes, you could have. You could have said no. The temptation was not too powerful. Other people have been through the same thing, and they didn't sin. You might have said yes last time. You can say no next time. And you can say no every time it happens again. James 1, 14 and 15 says this, Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Remember, we always do what we do because we want what we want. But God is faithful. One thing we've learned in this passage, we are not. But God is faithful. One thing we learn in this passage is we can prove or try to judge him unfaithful. We can't prove it. We can try to judge him unfaithful. But God is faithful. He will always do what he has said he will do without fail. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, here's our hope, he will also provide the way of escape. The, the, singular, the path to embark on, the way to go. Not a way to escape, the way of escape that you may be able, it says, to endure it. It meaning temptation. Endure meaning that temptations don't just go away, do they? They can be things that we have to endure. The word means to bear up under the load and for an extended period of time. Think of Paul. Lord, take this thorn out of my flesh. What did God say? My strength is made perfect in weakness. And the way to endure, that hope, the way to endure is to embark on the path that God gives you. The way of escape is to run the race in order to obtain the prize, which is Jesus Christ. We don't escape temptation by not doing bad things. Stop it, stop it, stop it. That's not how you escape. We escape and endure by doing that which is good in our pursuit of Christ. We put off the old man and we put on the new. Created for good 
works. Idleness is not escape. Walking, running in a manner worthy of God, that's escape. And it's powered by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. God has provided the way of escape. So, let's answer that true-false question from earlier. God will never give you more than you can handle. Better yet, let's tweak it. Let's refine it. Make it a little better. Was verse 13 about external hardships in life or something else specifically? I gave it away, didn't I? It's temptation. Is temptation a hardship? Yes, but this verse is talking about temptation. So how about we say it this way? God will never allow you, Christian, to be tempted more than you can handle. And the way you handle it, the way you bear up under the load of your temptation, as long as it may last, is to run the race. Looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith the prize of your upward calling, the giver of the only true and everlasting joy. He is your way of escape. Jesus is the way of escape. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Let's look to Jesus. Pray together. Father, we thank you for your wonderful grace. In honesty, we look at the selfishness that is given here out of the church of Corinth and, and surely there were people who were growing and changing in that church as there is here. But we look at the selfishness displayed and we look at the selfishness displayed in the wilderness. God, may we not be proud and think that we are better off or that we are superior May we rest in the grace that you have given to us through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, knowing that that is where we stand. God, I pray if there's anybody here today listening who maybe has called themselves a Christian for a long time, but have been relying on their their own selves, manipulating what they have been taught, avoiding repentance. God, I pray that you would break their heart now. Not not because we desire to see hurt, but because we desire to see life and eternal life. God, thank thank you for providing for us the way of escape. We thank you, Lord, that when temptations come, because we have freedom in Christ and because we have the prize of being with him, we can say no to what is wrong, evil, destructive, hurtful, dishonoring to you. And we can say yes to what is good and right and true and joyful and honoring to you. God, please help us to look to Jesus God, work in our heart that our desires would be shaped and conformed to delight in and to take great pleasure in you and in your truth 
that we might desire and enjoy the taste and see the Lord is good. That we would live hard, follow hard after you, sacrificing of ourselves, that by any means some may be saved, that you would be honored, that our joy would increase. I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.